This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. Let's go! Up in the northern east coast of Canada sits the state of Alaska. American-owned, although connected to Canada by land to the Yukon and British Columbia. Interestingly, Alaska was purchased by America from Russia in 1867 for $7 million. I'm not a history teacher, so I have no idea why Canada or the British colony didn't have it as part of Canada, but that's not what today's story is about. In the interior of this beautiful and rather remote state is a small city called Fairbanks, with only 33,000 people. Winters are long and cold, and the summers are brief. But what it lacks in weather to entice visitors, it more than makes up for in scenic sites and settler history. Fairbanks hosted the 2014 Arctic Winter Games and annually holds the Yukon Quest, a thousand-mile dog sled race, considered to be one of the toughest and most challenging in the world. Despite the population of Fairbanks now being about 65% white people due to mining camps and other natural resource jobs, the Athabascan people have called Alaska home for about 3,500 years. The Athabascans are divided into 11 different linguistics groups. Another group that have called Alaska home for centuries is the Yupik, who are an indigenous culture native to Far East Russia and Alaska. Related to the Inuit people in Canada, they make up about 22,000 people in Alaska's sparse permanent population. Fairbanks is also home to the University of Alaska Fairbanks, classified as a doctoral university due to its impact on forestry, the Arctic, and engineering research. And today's story is where one member of the Yupik people and the University of Alaska Fairbanks collide. This is the murder of Sophie Sergi. Sophie Sergi was born and raised in Pickett's Point in 1972 to her mom, Elena. Sophie has an older brother named Alexi. From what I understand, he later joined the Navy, and quite a number of years later came along her little brother, Stephen. Pickness Point is a tiny, tiny village of only about 30 households, all of them Yupik people. And of the 30 households, 3.69 of them were single moms raising kids, and Elena was one of them. So the very petite, she stood about five foot tall, and studious Sophie received a full scholarship to the University of Fairbanks, Alaska to study marine biology. Her family and the entire town couldn't have been more proud of her. Sophie traveled the one-and-a-half-hour drive from Pitkiss Point to Fairbanks and spent her first year living in the dorms. Through a student organization for rural students, she met Shirley Wasulu, and the two became fast friends. Sophie wasn't the most social person, preferring to study over partying, and Shirley and her were a good match in that way. Sophie, with her scholarship, was also able to complete her two years successfully and without any incident. But then she had to take a year off of her studies, and it's a wee bit muddled to get the actual truth about why. Some reports say it was because her mother was having a health issue and she needed to be at home to help her with her little brother. Other reports say it was because she needed surgery to correct an overbite that she had, and she needed to save up the money for that by getting a job with health insurance. And some say it was just a way to save money between the years. My feeling it was probably because of all three, really. A full scholarship, at least here in Canada, pays for books and tuition, but doesn't really help with living expenses. So taking a year off to work and save up makes some sense. 
Sophie did have an overbite and did need surgery, and that was coming up. So that could have been part of it, and her mom could have been sick. And more than that, some reports say it was actually only one semester that she was actually taking off. Regardless, it doesn't really matter, but I hate trying to just pick a reason, so I'll just be honest and say I don't really know why. But she did take a year or a semester off, traveled back home to Pickus Point, and got a job as a clerk at St. Mary's School, which was nearby, and planned on reattending the University of Fair Alaska Fairbanks in the fall semester. So on the weekend of Friday, April 23, 1993, 21-year-old Sophie traveled again to the campus of University of Alaska Fairbanks, but this time not for classes, but because she had this dentist or orthodontic appointment on Monday, April 26th. So she had arranged to stay with Shirley at her dorm room in Bartlett Hall, which is an eight-story co-ed dorm facility. And the floor alternates like one floor boys, second floor girls, third boy boys, etc. So Shirley's particular dorm room was on the second floor. Sophie and Shirley were excited about this arrangement because they could spend the weekend hanging out like old times together. And then she could go to her appointment and then fly back home again. And that night, it was a Saturday. They just hung out together. They got food, talked, gossiped about all the usual things young women would do uh, when they haven't seen each other in a few months and want to catch up with each other. There's no drinking or partying, just casual hanging out between friends kind of thing. So that Sunday night, which was the night before her dentist appointment, Sophie hung out with Shirley and her boyfriend Noah in Shirley's dorm room and watched some movies and ate pizza. Again, just really normal, wholesome college stuff to do. Around 1.30 a.m., which would actually be the Monday now, Sophie wanted to have a cigarette, but being that this is Alaska, even if it was April, it's still super cold out. So Shirley told her, just go to the second floor women's bathroom and sneak a cigarette in there. Lots of girls did it, and as long as she blew smoke near the exhaust fans in the shower part of the bathroom, she would be fine and wouldn't get caught. And it was better than going out into the cold. And if you're wondering about the staying up late part on a Sunday night, this particular weekend was just before finals were to start, so although Shirley would have had some studying to do the next day, there weren't scheduled classes to attend. From what I can piece together, these washrooms were kind of different from any that I have seen before but I've never lived in a dorm or been to a hostel or anything, so maybe it's not that odd. But basically the washrooms in the dorm were set up with a row of sinks and toilet stalls like any normal public washroom. And then there's a door to a shower area, but a separate door to a room with a bathtub in it. And then adjacent to that washroom is another mirrored girl's room that shares a common wall, but just a separate entrance. Um, I didn't know that you could have bathtubs in a college dorm like that, but I guess so because this layout comes back later in this story and it's important and the two separate entrances is important as well. Shirley and Noah got tired of waiting for Sophie to return and they left a note on Shirley's door that they were going to go to bed and stay in Noah's room instead and that she could just make herself at home. The next morning around 9 a.m. Shirley returned to her dorm room to find that Sophie wasn't there. She was a little concerned, mostly because the note on the door hadn't been touched, like the door was unlocked and the TV and lights were still on, and her bed hadn't been slept in, just as they had left it for her. So she obviously hadn't been back there since she had left, but Shirley figured that maybe she'd bumped into someone that she knew while she was out for a smoke, and decided to stay in their, in their room since Shirley and Noah had left. But she started to ask around and no one had seen her since the previous early morning hours when they'd first left when she'd first left the room. So Shirley and a few of her friends started looking around the dorms asking if anyone had seen her. 
Shirley's concern grew as the day wore on and no one had seen or heard from her and her clothes and stuff had all remained untouched in Shirley's room. Even more concerning was when Shirley called the orthodontist office, she learned that Sophie had been a no-show, which is completely not like Sophie at all and the entire reason for her trip to Fairbanks. Unbeknownst to Shirley or any of Sophie's friends, around 2 p.m. that afternoon, a female janitor slowly making her rounds from the eighth floor to the lower level of the dorms had discovered the partially clothed body of a young woman in one of the bathtubs in the second floor women's room. The completely hysterical janitor had run screaming from the room to the administrator's office where the police had been immediately called. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any reports that even suggested that the dorms had been put on any kind of lockdown to prevent people to continue coming and going, and that might have been helpful to their investigation, but maybe not since her body had been found 12 hours after she had actually been killed. Police knocked door-to-door in the dorms that afternoon asking if anyone had seen or heard anything, and when they got to Shirley's room, she flew into a panic and shoved a copy of Sophie's ID, which had been left in her room, into their hands and told them that her friend was missing, and the police were able to make a visual identity from the ID that the girl in the bathroom was in fact Sophie. Sophie's pants had been pulled down to her ankles and her shirt had been pushed up to her chin suggesting she had been sexually assaulted before her death. Sophie had evidence of a gunshot wound to the back of her head as well as several stab wounds. Police interviewed all of the students that were on the second floor and no one reported hearing a gunshot or anything out of the ordinary. It was a bit challenging because it was near the end of the school year so some students had already left the campus to return to their homes for the summer and weren't able to be interviewed and there wasn't a ton of security on the campus either at that time and people were kind of free to come and go without IDs being checked. DNA samples were taken from Sophie's clothing and body and a semen sample was found but as DNA was rudimentary science back then, there hadn't been a match. So her case unfortunately went cold, but the samples were put into storage, hoping that one day a match could be found when science caught up. The autopsy report showed that Sophie had been bound and gagged and tasered with a stun gun, then beaten, choked, and then stabbed multiple times, including to the cheek and eye, before being shot in the back of the head with a 22 caliber gun. At some point, the water had possibly been turned on to try and destroy evidence because when they found her, her body and clothing was damp, and her time of death had been determined to be sometime between 1.30 a.m. when she was last seen and 5 a.m. There was a really large memorial service held at the university for Sophie, and counselors were brought in to help the students cope with such a traumatic event happening so close to home for them. Sophie's body was returned to Pitka's Point and her mother, who was beyond distraught, laid her to rest next to her grandmother's plot. According to Bratterstein, a YouTube podcast on this case, Sophie had talked to her mom on the phone around 4 p.m. the Sunday to tell her that she had promised her little brother Stephen a new kite for behaving while she was gone. And whenever somebody dies, we all think back to the last time we talked to that person. And that's how we remember them. So Sophie was remembered as a kind-hearted young woman who truly cared about her family and village and was such a bright light taken away far too soon. There were two semi-witnesses that they were able to get a tiny bit of information from, but it unfortunately didn't really help point to any particular suspect. 
One female student said that she had gone to the girls' washroom on the second floor sometime shortly after 1.30 a.m. to shower. She had noticed the light was on in the bathtub room and thought it was a little bit odd because of the time of night, but she didn't really think much of it. And while in the shower, she heard what sounded like firecrackers or fireworks, but because of the shower stall acoustics, couldn't really tell where they were coming from or what the noise was. And she had assumed it was kids or firecrackers until the next day when Sophie was found and she started to piece things together. Another female student said around the same time she had gone into the adjacent ladies' room also to shower and heard through the common wall what she assumed was two students having sex on the other side of the wall. She did hear a metallic thud as well, but again didn't put the pieces together until the next day. The investigators couldn't really pin down a suspect, but did know that whoever had done this had planned it to a certain degree. He had been prepared with a stun gun, knife, and a twenty-two caliber. And because it was sexual in nature and showed a particular amount of rage and violence, they didn't really suspect another student because the level of sophistication was too high. But perhaps a serial killer who happened to know the campus while it had been watching Sophie. And according to Crime Capsule's stats, Alaska has the highest population of serial killers, with almost 16 serial killers per 1 million people. Alaska provides a good degree of isolation and wilderness in which to dump and hide bodies, which tends to appeal to those in the serial killer trade. It also has a lot of seasonal workers, which contributes to a transient population, and with that comes quite a bit of sex trade working, and of course the serial killer favorite, hitchhikers. Another problem for investigations is state troopers trying to spread themselves over a vast, isolated wilderness. So with so little to go on and the DNA stashed away for hopes one day to, for someone to compare the samples to, Sophie Sergi's case went cold in Elena. Sophie's brother Alexei and Stephen waited for answers that they feared would never come. And then in 2010, a retired businessman got together with a transportation engineer in Lake Worth, Florida, and inadvertently changed the face of cold faces around the world. Curtis Rogers and John Olson got the bright idea to combine two genealogy profiles of sites like 23andMe, Wikitree, Ancestry.com, etc. into a much larger database to help people find their birth families and started GEDmatch. When you upload your profile into one of these sites, you have the option of using an alias, but you must use a legitimate email address to register it. GEDmax, or GEDmatch, it takes those profiles and allows you to sort results with a shared global tree with the closest matches. And by April of 2018, GEDmatch had over 900,000 profiles uploaded and had helped 10,000 adoptees find their biological parents. Up until 2018, police and FBI used CODIS to try and find matches for DNA samples. But CODIS pulls DNA from directly from crime scenes, from arrested people and suspects, so it's limited. And white people, well, we are a little underrepresented in that database for reasons I'm not going to get into today. But we tend to love our 23andMe sites. So when a certain task force of investigators had this light bulb moment, they decided to submit a sample of DNA from one of the crime scenes of what had been dubbed the Golden State Killer and found that there were 10 to 20 distant relatives that came back to one Joseph James D'Angelo. Nowadays, there is some controversy over using these sites to track down killers and rapists who have gotten away with their crimes for years. 
And now law enforcement has now had to curtail their use of these sites a little bit. But I personally cannot understate the importance of the brilliance of the idea to use GEDmatch and genealogy to solve cold cases. Anyways, the Alaska state troopers who had never given up on finding Sophie's killer learned of this Golden State killer discovery, I mean, who didn't, and decided to submit the semen sample found on Sophie to GEDmatch in October of 2018, and on December 18, 2018, Randy McFerrin got a phone call that, that they had found Sophie's killer's aunt. A second-degree relationship was found which would include half-siblings, grandparents, etc., and was female DNA and this DNA profile matched to a woman that had no half-brothers and no children of her own, but did have a nephew that would have been about 20 back in 1993, one Stephen Harris Downs, who at the time was 44 years old and living in Maine. But he had attended University of Fairbanks, Alaska in the spring of 1993 and had been registered to a dorm on the third floor of Barrett Hall. Back in 1983, Alaska state troopers had interviewed Stephen Downs and his roommate, Nicholas Danzer. Both boys had said that they remember seeing Sophie around, but they didn't know anything about her murder and had no connection to her. At the time, Stephen had a girlfriend that he often spent the night with on the fourth floor. All they really knew about Stephen was that he had been born in Maine and graduated from Edward Little High School and after graduation attended University Fairbanks, Alaska and had lived in the same dorm one floor up from Sophie at the time of her murder, but so did about a hundred other students just like him. Since 1993, Stephen had a clean record, nothing to report really. Uh, he had gotten his RN and was working as a nurse. So it is a bit odd that such a violent and sexually motivated crime would be followed by 25 years of a pure and driven snow life. So even investigators were a bit skeptical about the science. So working with the Maine police, Randy McFerrin traveled across the country to Auburn, May, and put him under surveillance hoping to raid his garbage for discarded cup or something that they could get a DNA sample from, without alerting him to their attention on him. But no luck, so they arrived on the now 44-year-old's doorstep knocking to see if they could ask him a few questions. Stephen, who had packed on about 300 pounds since his college days, was cooperative with Randy in the investigation. He told them that, yes, he remembered a girl that was murdered in his dorm building, but he didn't know her. They showed him a picture of Sophie and said, he said, yeah, I remember seeing her face before, but probably just from all the posters and news reports at the time. His dorm was on the third floor, but he stayed with his girlfriend at the time a lot, and that was where he was that night. He didn't think he had ever been to the second floor and said that he had not seen or heard anything. Quote, I would have been forthright from the jump. I never knew or saw anything to begin with. He said that he figured that there had been soldiers from the Fort Wainwright that had visited the campus and liked to party in Bartlett Hall. Probably one of them had done it. And when Randy said, we have very strong reason to believe that you're responsible for this, Stephen just said, wow, that's kind of intense. But a connection to his aunt wasn't exactly a match made in heaven, and they needed a direct sample. So the next day on February 14th, as a Valentine's Day gift to themselves, they got a warrant. And a warrant that included not just the ability to search his house, but one that would give a non-voluntary cheek swab for a DNA sample. And they waited anxiously for the results from the swab. They searched his house and found a 22 caliber revolver, and of course... You guessed it, the DNA was a near-perfect match to the robust Stephen Harris Downs. When told that, Stephen said, there's no way that could be possible, there's got to be some mix-up. 
and on February 15, 2019, Stephen Harris Downs was charged with the rape and first-degree murder of Sophie Sergi. Stephen's trial was held in late January into early February 2022, and just to kind of sum the trial up, because you guys have lives to get to and the appeals are still ongoing, but I did track down some court documents, so this is factual stuff that I'm summarizing. The trial was presided over by Alaska Judge Thomas Temple. Stephen's ex-girlfriend Catherine Lee testified that she knew that Stephen owned the 22 caliber gun back in 1993 and that that night he had left her room to go to the bathroom. The jury also heard from about 45 witnesses and had to look at 150 exhibits. But let's be real, it was the DNA match that cinched it for the jury who found him guilty. And at the conclusion of the trial, Public Safety Commissioner James Cockrell said, After nearly 29 years, the family and friends of Sophie Sergi have finally received the closure and justice that they deserved. An Alaska State Trooper cold case investigator Randy McFerrin, the Alaska Bureau of Investigation, and the Alaska Scientific Crime Detection Lab dedicated a significant amount of time and resources towards successful prosecution of Mr. Downs and the verdict received today. Our investigators, forensic scientists, and criminal intelligence analysts will continue to run down every viable lead troopers receive on our cold case investigations to prove the same justice for those victims. And in September 2022, Judge Temple listened to sentencing recommendations from both the prosecutor, Jenna Grustein, and the defense, James Howanick. Jenna wanted the fact that he had used two different weapons and had sexually assaulted Sophie to be taken into account as aggravating factors, saying, so whether they're aggravating by analogy or just factors that the court considers and places weight on for implementing the appropriate sentence. So in this case, the court has a very wide discretion in the murder in the first degree sentence, 20 to 99 years to impose. And James whined on about Stephen's ill health. I'll be honest, Judge, the way we've approached this is really more on a practical plane. Stephen is 48 years old now. He's over 400 pounds. He's got very high blood pressure. I think that his life expectancy is not going to be, you know, 103 years old here. Anything in excess of a 20-year sentence, that's going to be bringing him to the near the end of his life under the best of circumstances. We asked the court to consider the intervening nearly 30 years he's been nothing but a model citizen. He became a nurse, one who cared for hundreds, if not thousands, of patients. He's really been a model prisoner for the Fairbanks Correctional Center. He's helped his fellow prisoners there with everything from their GEDs to helping counsel them if they're dealing with depression or substance abuse issues. He was on the dean's list multiple semesters for the remainder of his four years at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and then went on to be successful without a criminal history for the next 30 years. Judge Temple used sentencing guidelines from 1993 and said, To the charge of sexual assault in the first degree, the court is required by law to impose exactly an eight-year term of incarceration, and the court has no discretion to deviate from that number according to the laws in effect in 1993. I will note that there's no sentence this court could impose that would be adequate restoration of Miss Sergi's surviving family or her extended support network, There's nothing the court could do to restore those folks. And with that, he was given 67 years for murder and eight years for sexual assault. So under Alaska law, if he has no problems in prison, he can be released after he serves one third of his sentence or 25 years. So he's going to be 69 years old, probably a lot thinner because it's hard to maintain 400 pounds on a prison diet. Although there is a commissary uh, with Cheetos and ramen. Anyways, 
that was the very violent and terrible murder of Sophie Sergi. And I'm going to be back again next week with another case. In the meantime, you guys all know what to do. Rate, review, sign up for the exclusive content. You can check me out on YouTube and I'm also on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Let's go.